Alrighty. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the Daniels at this church who is a pastor. Um, if you guys uh, don't know, we have a team of youth and adults who are in Mexico right now. So Dan, our other pastor, is leading a trip to um, Ensenada where they're helping another church in the area do projects like repair roofs for people in the community and stuff like that. So if you guys could keep them in your prayers, uh, that God would really use them powerfully and that they would be able to serve um, the people there and um, receive love from them as well. That would be great. Uh, let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll get started. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are here, uh, that your presence is here with us, bringing comfort to unimaginably difficult situations. I pray, Father, that you would be um, present uh, in your word and that your word would speak to us and that we'd be able to hear from you. Uh, I pray that it would bring hope uh, and endurance uh, in our difficulties and that we would ultimately be able to trust you and look forward to when you come again. Um, we desperately need you uh, during this time uh, to lift our heads, and so we pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Sorry, one sec. Let me get some water. So we are in a series called God Puts the Lonely in Homes or Families. And so we began the series by talking about how a number of studies uh, a number of studies have observed that in American culture, we are a larger percentage of people than ever before are lonelier than ever before. And this goes through every single age range. So youth are lonelier. Uh, you know, young adults are lonelier. Adults are lonelier. Older people are all lonelier. And so that was all even before the pandemic. But then when the pandemic happened, we were increasingly isolated, and we find that this is a crisis where there is a crisis of loneliness. Uh, one, one fact that most people connect to this phenomenon where many, many people are lonely is there's been an increased incidence of despair, uh, deaths of despair. And so you find that people uh, basically die deaths of despair through drug use, alcohol abuse, suicide, and this is actually one of the leading causes of death, where people basically say, my life is unlivable, I cannot deal with my suffering and difficulty, and so they take their own lives. Uh, we also see a huge increase of mental health issues, uh, and this is especially among I mean, it's, it's everyone, but uh, a lot of the data has studied, especially younger people. And so you see, for example, like the rates of mental health, suicide ideation, uh, suicide attempts, especially among teenage girls, has skyrocketed. And so we've been asking this question, um, what do we do about this loneliness? How do we find hope when we are struggling with so many difficult circumstances. And the answer that we've been trying to argue for is that as a Christian, if you, uh, if you are a Christian, our answer to loneliness is God. 
and how God is a person who brings the lonely, like lonely people like us, into homes. And so the image there is really beautiful, where before it says, God is a father of the fatherless, God is a defender of widows, um, God, like he is that in his holy habitation, and then God settles the lonely in homes. And so this is who God is. Uh, we have many strategies to deal with our loneliness, and we're going to talk about some of those today. And I think this week and next week, we're going to listen to a car alarm going off. Is that someone's car? Can a person with a 2019 Nissan Altima please report to the front of the outside? And it's, it's Greg's. Is it, is it really your car, Greg? <laughs> and he calls himself an elder of our church turning off on his car alarm in the middle of me talking. How dare he? No, just kidding. Um, so it's going to be very difficult for me <laughs> to keep talking if that's going on in the background. <laughs> Has anyone ever tried that? Have you ever tried giving a speech while a car alarm is going off? Um, I'm going to try. So uh, what was I saying? So we have many strategies to deal with our loneliness. Can you guys think for a second of some of the strategies that our society or culture uses to deal with our loneliness. And you can like blurt them out if, if any come to mind. What are, what are really obvious ones? When people are lonely, what do they do? Go on their phones? Wait, Peter, you just whispered something to your sister. Do you want to tell me what? <laughs> D drinking? Yeah, totally. No, totally. Um, what else? Video games? Yeah. We're, we're missing the really obvious ones. <laughs> okay. Um, we are going to actually see in the passage. Yeah, what's up? Oh. Okay. Okay, well. Maybe, do you want to go ask the Chinese side if, or is someone announcing it to, okay, okay. I, I have a dog, so I'm a little concerned. Man, this is really distracting, really distracting start. <laughs> no, it's not your fault. Um, so what are some other, Grace, thank you for that answer. I was thinking something a little like before that. Um, uh, people go on dates, uh, people get married, people do different things, they, they seek friends, they do different things that try to address uh, loneliness. And those are all like strategies, right? Uh, but what our passage today is going to show, and I think any non-trivial view of life will show, show you, if you think about it for a second, um, that these strategies do not work. So we're going to talk specifically about relationships today, because the characters in this story um, they are a very modern family, or they're a very modern kind of group of people. They're characterized by intense dysfunction, rivalry, jealousy, inner emptiness. Um, they're characterized by all types of different, especially relational strategies to meet that inner emptiness. And we're going to see how those things really don't work. Um, and so, to, just to illustrate this, oh, by the way, I was supposed to say, happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there. I'm a first-time father, and I, um, whatever. I'm not going to talk about that, sorry. Uh, Dan always does the thing where he, like, connects the 
holiday to this. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not even going to bother. Um, but what I want to say is we're going to talk especially about relationships. So um, I, I, want, I want to think about, uh, for a second, your circumstances. So I remember what it was like to be a, high, a junior high boy, high school boy, college age boy. And um, I would say when I was single, uh, I, was, I would crush super duper hard on girls. Like there's some people who play it really cool and they're like, you know, I, I could take it or leave it. You know, I'm playing kind of hard to get like, oh yeah, you know, whatever, I'll go on a date with you and like whatever. But I would like crush super duper hard on girls. And I remember what it felt like where when I crushed super hard on this girl, I kind of felt like there's something deep inside of me that felt like if I was in a relationship with her, it would solve my inner loneliness and emptiness. And I would have security or self-worth or validation as a result of my relationship. Um, and then I met the perfect woman and got married. And now all of that has completely gone away, right? Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> my wife is awesome. But like, what's interesting is when you're single, that's often the mindset you have. And then if you talk to any married couple who has been married for any period of years, what the, many of them will say is, my spouse does not fill that inner emptiness and loneliness that I thought he or she would. And C.S. Lewis has a really interesting statement about this where he says, he basically is saying what I'm saying, and then he, he remarks, like, this is not talking about unhappy marriages. This is talking about the happiest marriages, where even in the happiest marriages, for some reason, mar like, marriage is awesome, but marriage does not fill this deep longing and hunger we have for something else, something more. Um, so if you talk to married people, there are many of them who would, so there are a, a couple of attitudes. So there's one attitude when you're single or, where it's like, and this is illustrated by, sorry to be crude, um, a Steve Carell movie called The 40-Year-Old Virgin. The 40-Year-Old Virgin is a movie where it's basically this 40-year-old doesn't have a relationship and he, he's a virgin and so he's a loser. And if you're single, your life is without meaning and it's dumb. You're less than human, right? And that's how some segments of our culture treat singleness. And that's totally wrong and not fair. Um, but then there are other people who aren't single, who are married, and they say, ah, the old ball and chain, you know, I got to listen to my wife and I can't do what I want. And, you know, like having kids, you know, they're such a pain and they're expensive. And so all of the things that you thought would fill your loneliness, when you get there, they don't. And this is actually a really profound observation about not just romantic relationships, but all of life. And C.S. Lewis puts this uh, beautifully, and I don't have the quote, but um, he basically says, uh, when we, whenever we, we, we travel, or we get in a romantic relationship, or we start to learn a language, um, we have this deep desire that this thing will fill us and make us happy. Um, but then once you start doing it for any period of time, you find that it doesn't. And so I would call this like the, um, the Christmas present in the morning, right? Where you look at a kid opening up their Christmas present and for about five minutes, they're so incredibly overjoyed when they got that thing that they wanted for so long. And then right after they open it, they like lose all interest. Like my niece and nephew do this all the time, right? We are like that as adults where we say, if only I had this, then I would be happy. So let me give you some adult examples. Um, I, 
I'm not going to name any names or like, I, I'll use one example of someone who's not here. I'll use one example of someone who's here. Both related to work, where I, I have a friend who um, is a very successful person and she works in tech. And she works at one of the big tech companies. Uh, I'm not going to name it, but it rhymes with Google. Um, and she thought, yeah, that was a joke, okay? Um, what's up, you guys? <laughs> that was a bad joke, apparently. I have to do. I'm a dad now, so I can do dad jokes. Um, so she works at Google, and she was on a team where she was very unhappy. Her manager she didn't like. And she swore, like, she would always complain about this. And she was basically had this mindset where it was like, if I could only get to a different team, I would be happy. I would be content, right? And then she got to a different team, and she was happy. No, she wasn't. This thing, this different job did not meet that deep longing and desire that she thought it would. Let me, let me use a different example. Um, I, I was talking to a good friend for quite a while, and uh, she was looking for a job, and she was complaining a lot to me and saying that, like, it's not fair, like, why can't I have a job? Like, I'd be so happy if I had a job, and like, you know, I, I really need to work and all that stuff. It's great to long for a job. Then she got a job, and she started complaining to me about how hard the job was. And there are many people who have done this to me, right? So it's like you're single, and you think you want a spouse, and then you're dating someone, and you start complaining about them. You're, you marry someone, and before you thought that would make you happy, then you start complaining about them. They're not what you expected. They change. They're different. You change. Your desires change. And so we, we come to this situation where what can actually satisfy this deep longing that we have? Um, St. Augustine has a really famous quote that's quoted in a million sermons, but it's still a really beautiful quote where it says, uh, God, he's talking to God, and he says, um, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, in God. So it's basically saying God is the actual origin of that longing, where we have a God-shaped hole inside of us, and the longing that we're looking to fill um, with all of these different things in the world, um, those are all good gifts that God has given, but they were never intended to be the thing that would fill us and satisfy us completely. And so, um, like, we're going to talk about that today, how in our passage, there are these different people who are all looking to fill this inner loneliness. Um, and the other thing I want to say is... Um, there are, there are a few strategies we can use to deal with these types of disappointment and inner emptiness. One of them is the one I was talking about ready, already, where you think if your circumstances changed, you would be happy, right? And C.S. Lewis calls this the foolish way, where he says, um, basically, this is like, if only I was, if I had a different job, I would be happy. Or if only I had more money, I would be happy. Um, and then there's another, okay, I'm not going to use that example. Uh, th there's, a different, there's a different approach um, that C.S. Lewis would call the way of the disillusioned or the cynical, where you basically say, uh, life doesn't satisfy me, and it was naive and kind of childish to think, to expect all of these grand things of life, to expect that that deep longing in my heart can actually be met. And so be, you just give up. You just resign yourself to kind of like a kind of a lonely or disappointed life. And that to me, that actually reminds me to some degree of like a Buddhist approach 
to, uh, to life where you try to get rid of attachments. All of life is suffering, and the way you avoid suffering is by letting go of your desires and no longer becoming attached to these different things. But no, neither of those strategies is Christianity. And so as we look at our um, characters for today, I hope we can find, um, we can kind of find how uh, what God says about Christianity is different than any of these approaches. And then honestly, um, what I would suggest for you is I would want to ask you, what is the approach or longing that you think will meet all of your dreams? Like what, what do you, like uh, in Harry Potter, in Harry Potter, hey Peggy, um, I'm trying to be relevant with the kids, so I use kids' examples. But Peggy's over Harry Potter, so I don't know. Like, um, apparently, this is no longer relevant. <laughs> um, in Harry Potter, number one, Harry Potter and the the Sorcerer's Stone, um, Harry Potter goes to this magical mirror, and it's called the Mirror of Erised. Okay, and when he looks in the mirror, he sees the thing that his heart most truly desires, because Erised is desire spelled backwards. Whoa. But, but it's actually pretty profound. I want you guys to ask, if you were to look in that mirror right now, what would you see? So Harry looks in the mirror and he sees his dead parents alive and well with him. Another person looks in the mirror and sees himself being like the most accomplished Quidditch player. You know, like he's won all the academic achievements. He's a super jock and he's super smart and he's successful, right? What would you look, um, what would you see in that mirror? And it's really, really interesting. I think many of us would see something like um, what our characters here do, where if only I married the right person, if only I had this romantic relationship, I would be happy. Or for other people, if only I had the perfect job, I would be happy. But I would argue none of these things work. Um, and the most amazing thing is that God is so good that he can take life circumstances that are so incredibly terrible and difficult um, it, it's not about changing your circumstances. It's about God's ability to transform utter disappointment when you don't have a romantic relationship, when you don't have a job, when you experience chronic illness or different things like that. Christianity never promises that you won't experience disappointment and suffering, but God promises something really amazing um, in Scripture that can uh, kind of change your orientation to these things and get us through. Um, so let's go ahead and look at it. Um, we're going to be reading Genesis chapter 29, and I'm going to be reading uh, just a few verses. Um, this is Genesis chapter 29, verse 31 through 35. We're going to look at a few characters and see how God um, deals with their loneliness in a way that's very different than we might expect. So this is Genesis 29, 31 through 35. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So this is, uh, this is a 
interesting passage, and you're, you're, you guys are going like, what the heck is going on? So let me tell you what the heck is going on. Um, let's go ahead and look at this. What we're going to do is we're going to see who Leah is by looking at different relationships she has with her family and people. Um, and by doing that, we're going to see how God meets her in her loneliness. Um, if you were to, um, as we're reading about who Leah is, um, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a counselor or advisor to Leah. If you were a counselor, how would you help Leah when she's going through these incredible relational difficulties, familial dysfunction? Um, and then I'm really curious to, for you to think what your answer were, would be. Um, and then what I want to say is there are some people like Leah, and we are, we are like these people, where your disappointment will never change. What I mean is there are some people whose circumstances are so incredibly difficult and broken that we would think it's impossible for them to ever be happy or whole. But because of this example of Leah, we can see how God can take people who are unloved. Like, no one loves Leah, and her life is so difficult. And so she is a total failure when it comes to being like a happy like person in a happy marriage and romantic relationship. Um, and yet God actually loves her and cares for her in a really incredible way. Um, so let's go ahead and look at Leah's different relationships. So I'm going to kind of tell the story as we go along. So the first relationship I want to look at is I want to look at Leah and Rachel, okay? Um, so let me tell you who Leah and Rachel are. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. So Jacob is uh, the, father of Israel, uh, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he's been going on this journey where he, he's kind of a trickster. He steals his brother's blessing from his father. And then the, and the, there's an extremely dysfunctional family that Jacob's coming out of where there are siblings. And he is the younger sibling. And his father only loves the older sibling because he's a man's man. Like he hunts. He's strong. He brings food like meat for his father. And then Jacob's kind of like a nerd. He stays in the tent with his mom. He's kind of a mama's boy. He doesn't do cool stuff for his dad. So his dad loves Esau, but he doesn't love Jacob. And so Jacob lives a life where he is constantly comparing himself to his older brother and finds himself wanting. And so how, how do you think you would feel? And maybe some of you feel this way. Like I have an older sister who's like a superstar. And I went to the same school as her. She's two years older than me. Um, she was drum major. She was salutatorian. She has perfect pitch. She's just like, like a, she's like the chosen one. She's like so amazing and gifted at anything she does. Like it could be like art. It could be writing. She's really super, super smart. She's really musical. Um, and then I was in band with her. And all of a sudden, like she's the drum major. And I'm just her little brother, you know? Like, my identity is just only in terms of my older superior sister. And so this is how Jacob felt. And it gets worse. Jacob stole his uh, brother's blessing from his father. That's a whole thing. And then Esau got really mad at him. And so Jacob actually had to run away because his brother wanted to kill him. This is the type of family dysfunction that Jacob was coming out of. And so Jacob went to a, a faraway land. And uh, his mother's brother was named Laban. And Laban had these two daughters, 
Leah, and Rachel. Okay? Now, what does this passage say about Leah and Rachel? Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So now, where this is a very interesting phrase, right? Where it's like, what does it mean that Leah's eyes were weak? And then why would the author say, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was very beautiful? Why doesn't the author say, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel had 20-20 vision? There's, there's something interesting going on there. He's comparing the characteristics, the defining characteristics of the two sisters, and there's something deficient about Leah, like her eyes were weak, and then when you look at Rachel, she's beautiful in form and appearance. Um, so Leah is, has weak eyes, whatever that means, and Rachel is super duper duper hot. Now, like, that's what the text says. So where, where it says figure, it means like she's really like, like sexually attractive or like she, her body is really great. Where it says appearance, it means her face is really, really beautiful. And so when you think about it, if you were Leah and you had this super duper attractive sister, but you were, had weak eyes, um, you would feel inferior to her. And we're going to see more about her, how like her difference with her sister causes all kinds of terrible trouble. So what does it mean that her eyes were weak? Um, some commentators say, real smooth. Some commentators say uh, she was blind. Uh, she was um, had poor vision. Other commentators say perhaps she had like protruding eyes or was cross-eyed, and that would kind of explain why the author is making that contrast. Uh, Rachel is beautiful and perfect, and then Leah is cross-eyed or has eyes that are like poking out of her head. There's something unattractive or unappealing about her. And so if you were Leah, um, how, would you, how would you find fulfillment when you have this like superstar sister who's so much better than you? Um, but it gets way worse, okay? So Jacob loved Rachel. Now let's look, about, let's look at Leah and Laban. So Laban is her father. Jacob says this. So Jacob comes to Laban, this foreign country, to get away from his brother, and he's also looking for a wife, right? Um, so Jacob says this. He sees Rachel, and he's like, whoa. And then his jaw drops on the floor, and she's like, wow, she is so attractive. I want to marry her. So he goes to Laban, and he says, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So this is really romantic, right? Jacob is so head over heels in love with Rachel that he, ser he serves her father for seven years. So in this culture, the husband or the person, uh, the, uh, the groom would have paid a bride price to marry the daughter, depending on how like desirable the daughter is. And so he didn't have any money, so he couldn't give... Uh, Laban like a cow or something. So he had to work for seven years to pay off this bride price. Um, and they seemed but a few days because of the love he had for her. So he was so in love that the whole time he was working hard, he was just like, I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait to be married. Um, but then something really crazy happens. So Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Everyone is like really shocked. This is kind of a shocking passage for many ways. It's kind of like crude um, or crass where it's very sexual. Um, Jacob says, like, I've done my work. Now I want to sleep with her. 
And you see kind of his inner emptiness, where if you think of all the dysfunction and all the people who don't love him in his family, he has this deep inner emptiness that he thinks can be met if he's able to marry and have sex with Rachel, this attractive person. And this is definitely a strategy we use to fill our emptiness. Um, and so he says, give me my wife that I might, may go into her for my time is completed. And it's super awkward because he's saying that to his father-in-law, right? Like, that's super weird. Um, so Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. So Laban plays a switcheroo where he takes his daughter Leah and gives her to Jacob instead of Rachel. Now, how would this work? Um, it would work like this, basically. So a, a few things would have happened during this wedding culture. Number one, the bride would be veiled the whole time, and not like a, like a see-through veil, like a heavy veil. And so he couldn't recognize who she was based on the clothes she was wearing and the veil. Second thing, there's tons of drinking at these weddings, and they last for multiple days. And so Jacob would not have been super like sober, and so he wouldn't have been able to pick up on hints and clues, right? And then the other thing is, um, it would have been custom for them to go to a tent after the party was over and consummate the marriage, and it would have been nighttime, and they didn't have electric lights, so like he wouldn't be able to see any difference. So this is the way that Laban is able to pull off the switcheroo. So he um, sleeps with her, and then in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Now, how do you think Jacob would feel about that? He was like, I didn't work for Leah, I worked for Rachel, and like, I don't, I don't want Leah. And then um, this is where, if you guys are interested, uh, you should check out a Tim Keller sermon called The Struggle for Love, um, where he talks about a lot of this stuff, this story, and it's a really amazing sermon that I've, I've borrowed a lot from. Um, but anyway, uh, so in the morning, behold, it was Leah. So now I want you to think for a second what it would be like to be Leah and to know that your dad feels this way about you. What, what are the implications for the fact that your dad would basically like trick this guy, Jacob, um, to taking you, the inferior sister? What does that show about your dad's attitude towards you? It basically demonstrates how Laban saw Leah as basically worthless. She was just someone who he wanted to get rid of. Because again, like if, if she never gets married, then number one, he can't get a bride price for her. But also number two, he's burdened with her and she can, she doesn't, she's not going to produce kids for him. And so he treats her in an incredibly neglectful, abusive, horrible way. And this is a really crazy passage about incredible family dysfunction. Um, but what, what I want you to think is and realize is, like, don't you guys recognize this in our world? Can't you see examples? It doesn't have to be exactly the same at this, but can't you see examples where parents, fathers, happy Father's Day, fathers don't love their children, um, fathers favor one child over the other, and it ruins people. It ruins you when parents show favoritism in this way. Um, and so he's just trying to pawn her off. And then Jacob is obviously like, you tricked me. Like, why? Like, give me Rachel. And so Laban says, okay, I'll give you Rachel if you promise to work seven more years for me. And so Laban tricks Jacob just the same way that Jacob tricked his dad to get the blessing. And then Jacob says, okay. So again, think about Leah's relationship with her sister. Her sister is way better than her, way more attractive, the perfect sister. And she's always lived in her sister's shadow. 
Um, her father doesn't love her. Her father neglects her and just tries to get rid of her, right? And then here's the craziest part. Let's look at her relationship with Jacob. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. So Leah lived in the shadow of her sister her whole life. And then not only did she not, she, she got married to the same person that her sister was married to. And Jacob, her husband, loved Rachel more than her. Can you imagine what this would have been like for her? How devastating it would have been to be constantly around your superior sister and for your husband to love her and not love you. Can you think about the inner emotional life of someone like this? And can you think of how hopeless the situation was for her, where she was lonely, she was neglected, she was abused. And so she has this deep emptiness and longing um, for her husband to love her, for anyone to love her, but no one does. She's totally unloved by the people around her. Isn't that like an incredible story? But again, there are people like this. Like we, we experience this type of devastating loneliness and we experience circumstances where it's like, how can you fix this situation? What counselor could heal this family dysfunction? It feels intractable, it feels impossible, right? But let's go ahead and see what happens. So this is where we're finally getting into the passage that I read. Um, God saw that Leah was hated. When he saw that she was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So now Leah is lonely, but God sees her. God knows what she's going through. And so he opens up her womb. Um, and this would have been a really big deal where fertility would have been extraordinarily important um, back then in this culture. And he opens up her womb so that she begins to bear children. So let's look at some of the sons that she bears. And again, Leah is such an evocative uh, character here. Um, it's so poignant what she says when she has kids. So let's look at the sons. Number one, Reuben. When she has Reuben, her first son, she says, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. This is really, really sad, right? where she's saying, I know our culture values having kids and especially having boys. Um, and if I give birth to a son, maybe my husband will finally pay attention to me and love me. Maybe I'll finally win his favor if I have a child. Maybe finally my husband will love me. And then let's look at the second one. Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. He, she has her first kid, hoping that her husband will love her if she produces a male heir. She produces a male heir. Does anything change? Does, she, does her husband all of a sudden say, oh, Leah, you're my favorite now? No, absolutely not. She says, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he has given me this son also. So, the, so Reuben, the name Reuben kind of means like seen, where Reuben, she's basically saying like, my husband doesn't love me, but God has seen me. And so his name will be Reuben. Simeon means kind of like heard or hear. So even though my husband doesn't love me, God hears me. God hears that I'm hated and he's given me the son. Third one, Levi, means attached. And she says when she has Levi, now this time, finally, my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. And so she's very, very successful in the pursuit of like having male children, which would have been a big deal back then. 
But each time, over and over again, she names them something where she's constantly hoping that finally her husband will love her. And she has this deep inner emptiness and hope that her husband would love her. And if her husband loved her, she would be happy and she would be filled. Like, do you guys know what this is like? Some of you might be thinking, if only I could get into this college, I would be happy and fulfilled. And honestly, get into that college or not, it's not going to fill you. It's not going to make you happy. Whatever your relationship status is, it's ultimately going to disappoint, just the, the same way that um, Leah is disappointed. C.S. Lewis says, it happens in the best marriages. It happens in the best schools. It happens in the best li lifestyles where you travel everywhere and you have a great time. Will that make you happy? Absolutely not. Travel to all the most amazing places in the world. Have all the greatest experiences. Um, will that make you happy? I know that's not true because when you look at many celebrities who are able to do that because they're incredibly rich and famous, they also are empty inside. And they say this. The most self-aware ones will all say this. Like, dumb example, Tom Brady, um, most winning quarterback in the, ever in the NFL. Um, he, he won three Super Bowls, and he was interviewed, and he basically said, I've won three Super Bowls. I thought it would make me happy, but now I'm just wondering, like, is there, what, what is there to, isn't there more to life than this? You're the most successful football player ever. You've achieved that thing you worked your entire life to achieve, and you, you find that you're empty. You're not, it didn't meet your expectations. And so he's disappointed. And then he went on to win a million more Super Bowls. And he's still disappointed, right? Let's, so let's like sum up Leah's relationships. She grew up in the shadow of Rachel. She was used and abused by Laban. She was unloved by Jacob. She was married to the same man as your beautiful sister. Um, and here's the other thing. There's even more sibling rivalry, right? Where Rachel was beautiful, but she couldn't get pregnant. And so her sister was so jealous of her for her ability to bear kids. And she was jealous of her sister because Jacob loved Rachel, but didn't love Leah. And so this is like such an awkward dinner table, isn't it? Can you imagine eating food together when like you're sitting next to your sister and it's like, what do you guys talk about? I don't know. I don't know. I, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be in this situation. But let's look at the, um, and then each one of these people has these unfulfilled longings. Le Leah says, if only my husband would love me, I would be happy. Rachel says, if only I had children, I would be happy. Jacob says, if only I was married, I would be happy. Well, guess what, Jacob? You got married to two different women, and you're still not happy, right? Um, but let's look at this last son that Leah bore, and we see kind of the beginning of hope for her. She conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. So Judah sounds like praise. And this is where the only thing that could save Leah out of this hell um, is God's intervention. And this, the Hebrew narratives are very sparse, which means they don't tell you a lot of interior dialogue. Like they don't, I mean, there actually is some in this passage, but what we're, we ask is like, what changed in her heart how did she change to the point where every time she had a kid, she said, this time my husband will love me, to this time she says, this time I will praise the Lord. There's no mention of her husband. She doesn't, in a sense, it feels like she doesn't care that her husband doesn't love her because maybe she's resigned to it, but she's actually able to say, this time I will praise the Lord. Isn't that incredible? Like, who could take someone this broken in such a dysfunctional, lonely, terrible, hellish situation 
and bring them to a point where they could actually have joy and praise God. Only God can do that, right? And this is the incredible truth about Christianity, where Christianity doesn't, like true Christianity never promises, this is what we think it does, true Christianity does never, never promises that we will have everything that we want in life. God never promises that. But many of us treat Christianity like that. So let me give examples. Like if I pray to God, God will give me what I really love more than God, which is in this case, the love of my husband. Because isn't that what Leah's doing? When she talks to God, when she thanks God, she says, God, I thank you that you've given me the son so that my husband will love me. And so the question is, what does she really love? Does she love God for himself? Or does she want more than God, her husband to love her? And then God is just a way to get what she wants. Do you guys kind of get what I'm saying here? Um, that's like many of us, where we say, if only I had this thing, I would be happy. And then we use God or we use church to get that thing. Where, you know, I'm not trying to throw shade at parents, but maybe just a little bit, where it's like, oh, my, my kid has a hard time at school and he has a hard time with the work ethic or he's, he's a troublemaker. So I send him to our youth group so that he will stop being a troublemaker and get into a good college. Like, I don't know how many parents would say that's the motive for sending their kids to youth group, but maybe some of them who are self-aware would. And definitely a lot of the kids whose parents do that pick up on that, where they send their kids to youth group and they say, I don't really care if you believe in the God thing. I only care if God helps you become a, a good kid and a successful kid. And so what do you really love? You love success. You want your kid to be happy. And so like Christianity doesn't work like that. Christianity doesn't say, if you believe in God, you'll be healthy, wealthy, um, prosperous, you know, he, it, because the life is full of suffering and any, um, any not naive understanding of life will not have that expectation um, that you can just remove all suffering and pain and all of your desperate longings will be fulfilled if you believe in God. That's not what it is. Instead, there's something different where God doesn't remove her suffering or her loneliness, but in the midst of her suffering, God is able to meet her and see her, and that brings her the ability to praise. This is what true contentment and happiness in the Christian life is. It's not that you won't suffer. It's not that you won't be disappointed or lonely, but it's that God is with you in your suffering, and he can actually lift your head in a way that you can praise him during that. And this is a very bizarre, this is like a very bizarre par paradoxical experience to have. Um, and I've had this many times in my life. You know, like there is one where, sorry, I'm, I'm throwing a lot of shade at my wife today, but um, there is one where we were having a fight. I'm going to get in trouble later, but whatever. Um, it's Father's Day. How mad can she get? We, we're having a fight because married people fight, right? Married people fight. And I was driving home from a retreat and we had not reconciled yet. She was really mad at me, and I was feeling very discouraged about it. Um, but then as I was driving home, this was a really bizarre story. I don't know if I've told it already in a sermon. Um, I was driving home from a, from a retreat site in, um, in like the, like, you know, uh, Santa Cruz Mountains, and um, I was on my way home, and it was like 11 o'clock or 11.30. And as I was driving home, before we had reconciled at all, um, I just cried out to God and I said, God, can you like help me like make up with my wife? And in that moment, before any circumstances had changed, 
I felt this overwhelming sense of peace. And it was really bizarre where it was even like, not just, it, was, it wasn't just like the absence of anxiety. It was actually like, God, I thank you that I can trust you to be with me through this difficult situation. And regardless of what happens, it feels so encouraging to know you're with me in this and you want us to be able to reconcile. And then something really weird happened. So I was driving down um, Bear Creek Road. Um, it's like, there's a road, you take a left. And then this is like at 1130, there's a person on the side of the road asking for a ride. And I was like, it's like past 11. I don't know who they are. I'm not gonna pick them up. And then I kept on driving down the road and there was another person on the side of the road with their thumb up asking for a ride. And I'm like, what the heck are you doing to me, God? Do you really want me to give this person a ride? So do you know what I did? <laughs> I gave them, I, I let them into my car, even though I was fighting with my wife. And I was like, you know, do you need a ride? How can I help you out? And so we kept driving down the road. And then he's like, take a left here. And the road went off to the right, not to the left. And so I turned left and there was a deep descending dirt road that was just like not paved and not official. And I'm like, oh my gosh, am I gonna die? And I kept on driving down that dirt road for more than 15 minutes. And the whole time I'm like, uh, did I make a terrible mistake? Eventually I got to basically like a homeless encampment because um, his car had broken down. So I, I, I drove to this homeless encampment and dropped him off and you know, he was fine. And, and the whole time like we were having a really good conversation about this. And so that, that's just like a weird part of the story, but totally unrelated to the point. It's <laughs> very interesting. And the, like the, the incredible thing is like, I feel like this is, this is how God meets us in our loneliness. If we expect that God will take away those things that disappoint us, we'll just be more disappointed. But if we bring these things to God and say, God, I need your help. Like, can you, can you see my, do you see my pain? Do you see my longing? God looks at Leah, he sees her affliction, he knows what she's going through, and he hears her. And then not only that, he turns pain to praise, where he could take someone who's so broken and say, this time I'll praise the Lord. The final thing I wanna end with is, God uses suffering people to bring redemption and comfort and healing to others. So one of the most amazing things about the story is Leah gives birth to Judah, and Judah means praise. And she says, this time I'll praise the Lord. But throughout the whole story of the Bible, we learn that Judah is the one whose line eventually uh, leads to the birth of Christ, Jesus Christ. And so Leah was someone that God chose to give birth to the savior of the world, Jesus Christ, and reconcile people to God and bring comfort and healing to broken, to broken humanity. And so the person who was completely unloved by everyone else in her life, God saw her, God loved her, God used her suffering so it wasn't wasted. Her life was not just terrible suffering with no purpose. He used her suffering to actually help people. And so this is another amazing thing that God can do. He can take the very thing, your very most area of greatest disappointment, and actually use that to bring comfort and redemption to other people. And there's a beautiful passage in 2 Corinthians 1 where it says um, basically that the God of mercies um, can use the comfort with which he comforts you to bring comfort to other people who are afflicted. The very thing that you, most afflicts you is also the area where you can bring healing and comfort to other people. 
Um, and one small example of that is just, you know, struggling with depression for much of my life. Um, because I've gone through the suffering, I feel like God has used me to help other people who are depressed because I can empathize with them. I can listen to them. I can understand what it feels like to some degree. And that, that's a way that God actually can bring healing. The only hope we have for our loneliness, the only hope we have for intractable situations like these, there are circumstances in life that cannot be fixed. Like no self-help, no YouTube video can fix the, the incredible dysfunction and brokenness of lives. But what God can do is God can help those people get through and not only that, redeem their suffering to do something good and use it to help. Um, so let me end with this example. Uh, there is a hymn writer named George Matheson who lived in, um, who's, his dates are 1842 through 1906. Um, three things about him. He was blind. So when he grew up, when he was really young, his vision was really poor. By the time he was 20, um, he lost his vision completely. And so he couldn't see, and this was before we had a lot of the modern um, amenities that we have that can help people who um, can't see. Uh, so when he, when he was 20, he was engaged to a woman and he was gonna go into Christian ministry. When she learned, the doctor said, you will be blind your whole life. Um, his, the person he was engaged to broke up with him. Can you imagine how devastating that would be? Um, and then from the age of 20 to 40, his amazing, incredible sister basically helped him do ministry where he preached, he taught, um, he shared the gospel with people, and his sister would like be his helper. She would take care of him, she would cook for him, she would do all the things that he couldn't because he was blind. When he turned 40, his sister was engaged, was, it was basically the night before his sister was going to be married. And his sister was going to be married, which meant that she no longer could care for him. You know what I mean, right? So he was abandoned by the person he was engaged to be married with. He was abandoned by, not abandoned, but his sister had to leave his care to someone else because she was going to go off and be married. Um, and he was sitting there in his room all by himself and thinking to himself, how can I possibly get through this suffering and devastation? How can I deal with this disappointment and loneliness? Who can help me? I'm blind. I'm abandoned. I have no one. And what's so incredible is he wrote this beautiful hymn called, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And this is what he says to God. He says, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. Where he's saying, God, you, 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 your love for me, you're never going to leave me. I know that. Even though my life is falling apart, you're never going to let me go. And he says, I rest my weary soul in thee. I'm so tired, God. I don't have anyone. I don't have anything. I only have you. And then he says um, later on, O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. Where he says, I know the cross of Jesus Christ. I know that God can re bring resurrection and hope and redemption out of the deepest suffering and difficulty and loneliness, because he did that on the cross. And so God, I have nothing. I lay in dust, life's glory dead. He's saying, my circumstances are to be pitied. There's a philosopher, Aristotle, who basically said, if you wanna be happy, you have to be born a certain way. If you're born crippled or blind or ugly, he literally says that, crippled, blind, ugly, you never will be happy because your circumstances are too bad. They're insurmountable. 
Isn't that interesting? Doesn't our modern society feel like that a lot of times? You have to be favored. You have to be fortunate. Those are the people who can really be happy. The smartest ones, the brightest ones, the most attractive, the healthiest ones. But look at this, George Matheson. He could say, I lay in dust, life's glory dead. I have nothing. My life is in dust. And yet from the ground, there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. And so it's a beautiful picture of how God can take this broken life and he can create something beautiful out of it. And so George Matheson wrote this hymn, which is a testimony to God's ability to turn brokenness, loneliness, mourning into praise. Do you know this God? Do you know this God who's able to do this? Do you know that this God, he sees you wherever you are? And even if the thing you desperately desire never happens and you live a life that's full of disappointment, he can actually be with you in that and turn that, transform it into praise for him. That's just how good he is. And not only that, he can redeem your suffering into a meaningful, purposeful life. If you don't know this God, I just want to like implore you, take time, um, try to learn who this God is and see, honestly, like do an experiment where you're like, God, if I seek you, will you actually meet me in my loneliness? Or are you just going to do nothing? And I, I honestly believe if you seek him, he says, um, like, seek and you will find. Ask and it will be given to you. If you want to know him, if you want to experience freedom uh, from loneliness, this, this may not be quick because, again, for Leah, it takes years and years and years. But I truly believe if you seek him, um, he will answer these deep questions and he will transform your suffering into something good. Let's pray. Dear Lord, um, I pray, Lord, for those of us who are so deeply disappointed and suffering and lonely. Um, and I pray, Lord, that by your incredible grace and power, you would bring encouragement and comfort and hope. I pray for us that as the body of Christ, um, we would also learn what it means to be like you in caring for people who need help and need hope, and that we would be able to be your instruments of healing, that we would be um, wounded healers uh, in your hands uh, to restore and be part of your story to bring redemption to a fallen, broken world. Um, so I pray, Lord, by your power and love, you would do this. Um, we trust you. We desperately need you. In Jesus' name, amen.